Acts 26, verse 1. I'm going to grab a stand here. Sorry. I've got a long scripture to read. It's hard to navigate. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the very beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part, uh, party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this purpose I am accused by Jews, O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to, to Damascus um, excuse me, with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass, said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the goal is pretty simple. Tell your story. The, the game, though, here isn't quite as simple because only one out of three is telling the truth. 
My name is Gabe Coyle. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you all. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the game Three on a Couch? So a few, a few. Okay, some of you may have heard of it, but maybe it went by a different name. It's called a couple different things. But to explain it, I need a, a few volunteers, three to be exact. So could you raise your hand if you're willing to come sit on a couch for just a second? All right, yes, come on up, come on, come on, come on. All right, can, I need two more. I know it's second service. We're, oh, come on, Nathaniel, come on, come on, come on. One more, one more. All right, Allison, yeah, come on up. Great, great, great. Okay, so introduce yourself to the group here, to everybody. Why don't you start? Okay. And I've been coming to pick Christ community since October last year. Excellent. I'm Nathaniel Walsh. Slide down just a little bit. Yeah. Um, Allison Swahair. Excellent. Okay, you may have a seat. So, uh, it's great that you joined us up here. Now, you're going to, the point of this game is to reveal your deepest and darkest secrets. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. Not true at all. Okay, so really the point of the game, okay, you have, let's say you have 10 participants, all right? Three out of the 10 come sit on the couch. And then there's a master of the game. I will naturally play that role. Um, there's a master of the game. And, and then you have six people who are trying to guess, per se, you know, who is telling the truth? How does this set up? Each person out of the 10 writes down three true sentences about themselves on a piece of paper and puts their name at the top. They fold it in half. They give it to me. I would take that piece of paper and then I will name and I'll pick one out of the three here. Let's say Allison. And I will say one true statement without letting you know whose true statement it was. I will say a true statement like, you know, while I was in New York City, I gave Kanye West a fist bump. Way to go, Allison. Totally could see it happening. <laughs> Um, rocking it. Um, and so I would say, while in New York City, I gave Kanye West a fist bump. Now, for Allison, going forward, the game is easy peasy. She just has to tell her story. For the other two, the game is on. Because Allison's giving a testimony. The other two folks are giving a presentation, right? They have to somehow present themselves as if that sentence was true about themselves. And the other six who are sitting there in the audience have to ask investigative questions. Why were you in New York City? How did you bump into Kanye West? Why didn't you give him a hug? Like, you know, these kinds of things. And you better have good answers, right? And the goal out of the end of it is I'll call the end of the game and then I'll say, all right, who do you think it was? So how many of you thought it was so-and-so? You know, and raise your hand. And then by the end, I would reveal who was telling the truth the whole time. And you tally the points after so long. Um, and you, you know, whoever wins the most rounds wins the game. Pretty obvious, right? Pretty clear? Um, well, I was playing this game a couple months ago. And I'm a pretty competitive person. I don't like playing games I can't win. That's on that person. I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys go and play. No, I'm good. So no. If I can't win, I don't want to play it. So... Um, but I didn't know I, I was, but here's the deal. I'm really terrible at this game um, because I am a terrible salesman. Um, now tell me, if I, if I experience something and I'm really excited about it, look out. I will not stop talking about it. But if it's something I haven't experienced and I got to figure out, you know, how to sell it, that's not my strong suit. And here's what I've discovered just an experience broadly. And I know you all know this is, this is true. You already know this is a true statement, but I want to highlight it as an important statement this morning. Here it is. Testimonies trump presentations every time. Testimonies trump presentations every time. You know, 
the, the worst people, the, most, the folks who lack the most persuasion are the people who are uber salesy. They feel super slick and a little slimy. But the people, no, sorry, but the people who like have experienced something and they're like, they're, they, they can't help but just tell their genuine experience and their genuine excitement. When people are telling those kinds of stories, what happens? We lean in. Don't we? We just naturally, you can tell this is their story. This is true about them. And you want to know how it can maybe, just maybe be true about you. And this idea, how testimonies trump presentations every time, is absolutely crucial to what we're going to discover in our text this morning. Okay? But before we do that, why don't we give a warm round of applause here for our folks up here. You can go and have your seat. I'm so grateful for you all. I mean, you, you came up here so courageously. You know, thank you for doing that. Um, so here's the deal. These, these next three weeks, we are ending our journey through the book of Acts. We've been walking through this for a while. Acts is the historical origin story of the church. And what we've seen, it all started back in the beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus is with his first followers. And what does he say? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what we've seen again and again over these past few weeks is that when you begin to follow Jesus, you simultaneously are sent as a witness wherever you are to Jesus, right? You're sent to the people around you to be a witness of Jesus. And this is really important. And I want to make a key distinction, okay? What I didn't say is that we are witnesses with good news exclusively. If we're just witnesses with good news, we're actually not witnesses, we're messengers. We're telling you about something that happened back then but didn't happen to me. I'm going to tell you a historical claim, period. That's important, but that's not all we are. We're not just messengers. Being witnesses means we are witnesses of this good news. It means that something has happened to us today and that something has happened in our personal lives that we have experienced and actually continue to, to continue to encounter and experience, okay? Webster's Dictionary defines a witness this way. It is someone who has personal knowledge of something, personal knowledge. In other words, a testimony, not a presentation, you see? So testimony trumps presentations every time. And I think this is really important. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been kind of exploring what the Christian faith is about, you need to understand very clearly that Christians are not some sort of cosmic salespeople. That somehow when we get to heaven, we're going to get all these bonuses and these extra crowns if we just get more people into the door. Um, some of you are like, crowns? No, like, if you really don't know Christian culture, you're like, dentistry? No, like, like these kinds of crowns. Like, we, that's not the way it's worked. From the very beginning of this movement, some of you are like, that was a terrible joke. It was a terrible joke. <laughs> and that's the way my mind works. I'm really sorry. Uh, but that's the way it works. But from the very beginning, the way Jesus has been working is he didn't call these extraordinary salespeople who always knew how to be closing. Like that wasn't the key demarcation of like, oh, you know how to close, you're in. No, it was ordinary folks who had an extraordinary experience and gave their lives to tell their testimony of what they saw, what they heard, and who they encountered. And this morning, what we're going to discover in Acts chapter 26 is something truly astounding. We're going to see how Jesus, when he encounters our lives, shapes our stories radically. 
And then simultaneously, no matter your disposition and your personality, we can actually tell our story very effectively and do so from the heart and point people to the beauties of the gospel. Because isn't that what we want? If we've experienced this encounter with Jesus that's changed everything, don't we want more people to know it's more simple than we thought and it's more powerful than we imagined? And we're going to discover it together. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. That's page 935 on our community Bibles if you're using that this morning. So to give us a quick review of where we've been in the book of Acts. Acts begins with Jesus and his earliest followers, those who actually spent time with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And it begins with these 12 guys and the Holy Spirit's working through them and the broader church to start the church and this movement across the world. And then about halfway through, suddenly it takes a slight turn. And it zeroes in on a guy who used to be called Saul and then becomes called, more often called Paul. And we see him on these different journeys sharing this good news. And even more than that, time and again, he finds himself on trial. And here we find him on trial before Agrippa II. So just to give you some historical context, this is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill sweet baby Jesus back in Bethlehem. Just to give you some historical. So great-grandson of Herod the Great, Agrippa II. And he says, okay, Paul, give us a defense of this faith. What's all this ruckus about? I mean, people are trying to kill you. Tell us what this is all about. And where does Paul zero in? Surprise, surprise, he zeroes in on his testimony. And its flow just flows right out of Paul. It's so, so natural. Where does he begin? He begins in the most natural places of all. He begins with who he used to be. Who he used to be before he encountered Jesus. So if you turn with me and look down at verse 4, Paul starts beginning with his birth. He says, look, I was born Jewish. And I was like the hot shot in Jerusalem. Like I was the one that everybody said, this guy, Paul, he's got it all together. And he was so zealous that he was, according to the strictest party of our religion, according to Judaism, he lived as a Pharisee. Like, so if you wanted to be like strict, strict, if you were like the top tier, you were a Pharisee. And Paul's like, that was me. He believed that God was going to fulfill his promises to Israel. He believed that there was going to be the resurrection of the dead. He was confident of it, zealous but he was just as confident, just as zealous that Jesus wasn't that Messiah, that he wasn't the answer to the promises of Israel, and that this whole way thing, Christians were nothing more than a cult. And you jump down to verse 10. He continues to tell his story. He says, not only did I lock up many of these saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I mean, this is about as zealous as you get. You can get in his rage against Christianity, knew no geographical bounds. He traveled far and wide to persecute, to end what he thought was nothing more than a menace on the world, Christianity. That's who he was. That's who he used to be. So he starts in maybe one of the most natural places and who he was from the beginning before Jesus. And where does he end his story? Also in one of the most natural places to end when he's telling his story, who he is now. If you go and jump up to verses 19 through 23, Paul lays out who he is now, which is radically different, right? Instead of persecuting the Christian faith, so he's headed on this road to a place called Damascus, and he's going to kill and maybe even imprison some Christians. He, he has this experience, and now he's one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest witnesses of the faith. 
It's radical transformation. What was the key to who he was before he met Jesus and who he is now? And he would even go on to say that, hey, you know, the only reason I'm alive, because all these people thought I was this hot shot back in Jerusalem, and now they want to kill me because I was like their poster child, and now they put me on posters to try to kill me because now I'm like the greatest mockery to what they were doing. And he says, the only reason I'm still here is because God's carried me through. And he says this down in verse 22, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is who he is now. Who he used to be, who he is now, radical change. What's the catalyst? We've already heard it from Lori this morning. The radical uh, change, the catalyst to this radical change was his encounter with Jesus. Right there in the middle of the story. Who he used to be, who he is now, right there in the middle is this encounter with Jesus. And it changes everything. Utterly changes everything. I love the way he zeroes in on verse 18. He says, when Jesus, when he, Jesus called him out, this is his own personal experience, and now he's called to do this for others. Look at what this change looks like. It's like eyes being opened when people were blind. They turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. They go from guilt to forgiveness of sins. And then this language sanctified. They're set apart. They're holy. They're whole when they used to be broken and amidst so much brokenness. This is the radical type of transformation that happens. And Paul understood that this is what happens when people encounter Jesus. This is what happened for him and he's seen it again and again. When people encounter the resurrected Jesus, they're never the same. Who they used to be is so much different and who they are now all because of their encounter with Jesus. This is his testimony. And what's so fascinating is that this story doesn't just show up once in Acts. It doesn't just show up twice in Acts. It shows up three times throughout the book of Acts, which is fascinating, isn't it? Like, remember, all of this is handwritten, not an email, no printing press handwritten, and when Luke is seeking to capture the history of the origin of the church, like every word matters, and he captures Paul's testimony first, early on in Acts, and then he tells it again, and now he tells it a third time, so we better be leaning in because this is extraordinary, extraordinarily important for us as followers of Jesus. If Luke continues to repeat what Paul continued to repeat, which was his testimony, and there's a lot to be gleaned there, but here's one big and important idea that we need to grasp this morning in, in light of this repetition of Paul's testimony. And here it is. Our personal encounters with Jesus form the foundation of our witness to Jesus. Our personal encounters with Jesus form the foundation of our witness to Jesus. And this is really important because we're not given interesting news. We're given good news, Right? What's interesting news? Interesting news is something that happened in the past to other people that has no bearing on the present day. And what happens when you hear interesting news? I think at best, you think, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> in other words, nothing. If it's just interesting news, it doesn't have bearing on your life. But if it's good news, sure, it could have happened in the past, but it means something today. It changes the way that you live your life. It changes the way that you view death. It gives you a different kind of hope in the world in which we live now. 
We're not given interesting news. We're given good news. It's historical. Jesus was a man in the first century who claimed to be the Son of God, who lived, who died, who rose again. Historical eyewitness accounts bring that verifiability. But it's not just interesting news about somebody in the past. It's good news because he didn't just do something in the first century. When we encounter Jesus, he changes us in the 21st century. And that's what it means to be a witness. And what's so fascinating is a lot of people can argue against Jesus rising from the dead. And a lot of people do. I don't think it's the best or the most plausible explanation for the evidence given to us within historical markers and the explanation of the broader movement of Christianity. I don't think it's the best explanation or the most plausible, frankly. But people can argue that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But what they can argue against is your story. You used to be this way, and now you're like this. What's the gap? What's in that mix? An encounter with Jesus, because he's not dead. He's alive. And you want to know one of the most organic, one of the most persuasive, one of the most natural ways to share the good news? It's to follow Paul. It's to follow Peter, to follow the earliest disciples, those who are part of the early church. It's to share your story and how it fits into God's story. Share your story and how it fits into God's story. You know, you're not, you're not seated here trying to give a presentation. You're not seated here trying to give a presentation. You're in this seat where Allison was giving your testimony. And if whatever, if somebody gives like, puts out a sentence there and it says, you know, I began following Jesus when I was 22, you know, and then the questions start coming. Well, why did you start falling? Well, it's no, there's no s real pressure or fear because you're just telling your story. You don't have to have all these worked out answers that are all nice and neat and perfect. You're telling your story. And that takes a ton of the pressure off. And it's also one of the most persuasive ways to tell about what God's done in history by also telling him what he's doing in you today. So share your story and how it fits in God's story. Now, when I say that, I know there's loads of pushback. One, um, the first one is, hey, Gabe, and I've heard this plenty of times sitting over coffee, is like, I don't have like that dramatic of a story. Like even Abby and I, we were talking a little, it's like, you know, I kind of grew up, I've always known about Jesus, and I, you know, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I feel like that's been my story. So what story do I have to share? It's not like I'm Paul. It's not like I went from a murderer to a missionary. Like that's something I want to share, you know? <laughs> Um, like the old cheesy joke is like a pastor who said, you know, when I was younger, I was addicted to the bottle and lived with a woman who wasn't my wife. He's talking about being a baby, <laughs> being with his mom. <laughs> we don't, listen, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that. <laughs> Sorry, that's old pastor humor right there. Um, that's nowhere in my little notes here. I don't know if that's a good idea. Scrub that from the podcast. But the... But the point is, listen, no matter your story, you really need to understand this. This is so, so, so important. Everybody has a story we're sharing. You want to know why? Because Jesus never leaves you where he finds you. Whenever you encounter Jesus, he does something in you. He does something around you. And no one in this room has arrived. So he's still doing something in you now. And when we start to say we don't have a story to share, 
One of, things are two, one of two things are true. You either haven't encountered Jesus or you're shortchanging what Jesus is doing in you. So don't say you don't have a story that's worth sharing because it's just not true. Now, there's also a whole other group that says, but Gabe, I've tried this and it didn't go well. Um, and maybe I have some like relational wounds. Anybody here had a pastor or someone in a pastoral position say, share your story about what God's done in you? Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, we got a couple, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And hear me. I want to just set this straight. And for those of you who haven't heard that before, you will experience this. So this is really important. Just because testimonies trump presentations every time, that doesn't mean that testimonies convince every time. Just because testimonies trump presentations every time doesn't mean testimonies are going to convince every time. What we're going to come to find out, actually, is later on, after Paul has given his testimony, neither Festus nor Agrippa II lean all into this story and embrace Jesus. Does that mean that Paul failed? No. Does that mean that this is a really terrible idea? No. It just means there's a lot that's not in your hands. There's a lot that's not in your hands. This is still one of the most persuasive, one of the most organic, one of the most natural ways to share the good news of the gospel is to share your story and how it fits into God's big story. Now, I said that there are two reasons in this answer. One is testimonies trump presentations every time, but testimonies don't convince every time. The second is this. Notice the and in this charge. Share your story and how it fits into God's big story. Okay? How do we do that? What does that mean? Let's look together, okay? So the first thing, if you want to share your story, the first thing you need to do is to know your story. Seems pretty basic, right? But this is really, really important. Know your story. Know your story. Know what it is that God and Christ has done in you. And this, you know, this looks different for different people. I, I think about this. The, the, one of the best ways to answer this question is, when did you first encounter Jesus? Or how are you encountering Jesus today? And once again, it doesn't have to be a Paul story. It could be like Timothy. Have you heard of Timothy? Timothy kind of grew up in the quintessential God-fearing home and then realized that Jesus was the answer. But he was kind of a good kid the whole way out, you know? Um, you look at uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's sitting there reading from a section of Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. And then Philip comes up and says, hey, I know you're asking some questions about that. That's pointing to Jesus. Can we get baptized in one of the fountains at the plaza? You know, and it, it's not really in the plaza. This is an old story in Acts. So uh, for those of you who don't know. And so, so that was his story. And now he's, he was transformed. So, and the same could be true of Lydia. The same could be true of Mary. The same could, I mean, Apollos, they have different stories across the way. But do you know your story? And whether it's Paul, whether it's Abby, whether it's Paulus, whoever it might be, there are three things that these stories have in common. And that's what I want to highlight today. And to kind of help us think about that, you should, everybody should have one of these on your seat when you came in today. And this is going to help us process together. If you have a pen, pull it out. You're going to be using it, okay? And here are the three things that every one of these stories have in common. Here it is. You know who you used to be, so what you are saved from. You know who you are now, what you've been saved to, and whom you've been saved to. So what you've been saved from, what you've been saved to, and whom you've been saved to. No matter who you are, 
These three things are common elements of what it means to encounter Jesus and be able to tell your story. So let's walk through these together, okay? So the first, from what? So that's that big box to the left of the cross, okay? From what? From what has God and Jesus saved you from? Like from what has God saved you in Jesus? Think about this. We have this clarity right there in verse 18 of chapter 26 where Paul details it out and he says, listen, no matter who you are, you're actually being saved from your sin. This cosmic brokenness that you have with God and actually Jesus dies on the cross and he takes that penalty for our sin and offers forgiveness. No matter who you are, that's true of you if you've encountered and embraced Jesus. Now I want you to zero in on that a little more specific though. And I want you to think about your own story. Because yes, that's true of everybody who's embraced Jesus, but what else has Jesus saved you from? Maybe when Jesus encountered you, you were wrestling with bitterness. Everybody else seems to have this life all together, but why did God treat me this way? And he's bringing you out of that. He's saving you from the destructive nature of bitterness. Maybe it's rage. Maybe it's isolation. What is it? That when Jesus encountered you, he's saving you from, that's destroying your life, that's made possible by the beauties of the gospel. Think about that. Know your story. Then move over, right? Because of what God has done in Jesus on the cross, to what has Jesus saved you? Think about this. No matter who you are, if you embrace Jesus after you've encountered Jesus, then you are saved to an eternity, an everlasting now existence with God. This life and life abundant, this is what you've been promised. This is what you've been offered. This is what you're saved to. But then get a little more specific. Did he also save you into community when you felt utterly alone? And you start to see the beauties of the local church as God designed it and how it's supposed to be a place of connection and support and embrace. Has he saved you to hope? Has he saved you to newfound joy because you know that God gave everything to make you his child and he'll stop at nothing to finish the good work that he's already begun in you? To what has God in Christ saved you? Think about it. Know your story. Make it personal. Understand with depth as to what it is God in Jesus has saved you to. And then lastly, to whom? To whom? Think about this one. This is so important. Every time God calls someone to himself, whenever we begin to follow Jesus, he sends us to others, to people in our lives or to people he's preparing us for in our lives. Paul says this here. Right there in that encounter with Jesus, Jesus goes, great, you're mine. Now go over there and talk to these people and tell them about me. <laughs> And that's not unique. In many ways, every single one of us who begins to follow Jesus, Jesus is now sending you to be a witness of what he's doing in you and what he did in history in Jesus to those around you. To whom has God and Jesus sent you? Think about it. Know your story. Know your story. But don't stop there, okay? So this is, if you want to just start to think and kind of give some categories to your story, because I think everybody has a story worth sharing. 
The question is, how do we tell our story and help people kind of walk through that story together in a way that feels a little more cohesive? Yeah, yeah, this could be a helpful way to just process your story and think about it. Don't let busyness take you away from this. Process this. Think about your story. Know your story. But don't stop there because Paul doesn't. If you just stop there, we can so often get the response that we do often have in our culture where it's like, well, that's your story. Good for you. It's compelling, it's beautiful, but good for you. And Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with his story, and it shows itself right there in verses 22 and 23. When he says, and this is what Moses and the prophets have been pointing to, when he anchors it in to the flow of history that all of Scripture has been pointing to. He's like, What I'm embracing now, actually, God has been doing throughout history. He said it through Moses. He said it through the prophets. And it's now finding its climax in Jesus. Like, this is a part of the history of the world. It's not just happening in me, but God's doing it this world over. He's been orchestrating the world to do this. As people, we long for coherence. We want to not just make sense of our own personal worlds, but we want to know how that makes sense of the world writ large, right? And that's why we don't just share our stories, but we share how it fits in God's big story. And philosophers and theologians will call this big overarching story a meta-narrative. Meta meaning overarching, you know, and narrative meaning story. And everybody comes with a big story. Even people who say, there is no such thing as a meta-narrative, are giving a meta-narrative that there are no meta-narratives, right? So there's no philosophical way to get around this. Everybody has a meta-narrative, like this big story in which we see how the world works. The question is, do we know what God has revealed about his story and how he's orchestrating history? And on the back of this little sheet, so you've got your story here on the front. On the back, This is hopefully a helpful little piece as well. As we think about, you'll see four blocks here that have four pictures and four, one with two words, but most of them have one word. These are the four, if you want to give it the broadest brushstrokes, the four chapters of the flow of all of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And I just want to give us a quick review as we think about God's big story and how we fit into it. We need to know God's big story. We need to understand the flow from Genesis to Revelation as God has been revealing himself throughout history, okay? So let's do that quickly. I promise them it's, it's going to be quick. So creation, right? It starts there in the first couple chapters of Genesis where God, who is uncreated, creates the world out of the overflow of his love and all that is in the world and the, the capstone of his creation is humankind. And what does he say over his whole world as it ought to be at the very beginning? He pronounces over his world, it is very good. This is the way things ought to have been. In his perfect intention, in his design, it's very good. Then we get to chapter 2, the fall. And this is where we see in Genesis 3, these first human beings. You see, God gave them litmus, like so many different blessings to choose from. And he said, one prohibition. I mean, thousands of wonderful opportunities. One prohibition. Don't do this or it'll break you. Ah, but you know, like all that looks great, but that one thing, I think you're holding something back from us. That's what those first human beings thought. Like I thought, I think you're holding something back. This is, this is, you know, and and quite frankly, I don't trust your boundaries, God. 
And so those first human beings being deceived by the evil one, because we're never really alone in the midst of those moments, reaches out and they cross God's boundaries and it breaks them just like God said it would. And it breaks them all the way down to their core and the whole world breaks with them. And that one, it's a common used word, sin, where they miss the perfect mark of the way things ought to have been, that one sin has left the whole world reeling into chaos And now, as their offspring, we have the genetic disposition and predisposition to continue these destructive decisions that hurt and break one another. Without this chapter, the fall, we can make no sense of human chaos and brokenness. And if we don't have the next chapter, then we have no sense of hope. But we're just left with chaos and brokenness. So that's the fall. Then we come to redemption. And redemption reveals that God has had a plan to make whole what has been broken from the very beginning. And he's made this promise right there in the beginning to that first couple there in her offspring that Eden's offspring would actually crush the head of the serpent. And all who have trusted in God throughout history have known his salvation and it has reached a climax Where Paul says, writing in Galatians, that at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for the brokenness and the sin of the world. And he took all of that penalty for our treason, for pushing against the God who created everything as it ought to have been. And we ignored his boundaries. Jesus took all that upon himself and then gave us in response forgiveness so that we might be reconciled to our God once again as we had been in the garden And the church, those who embrace Jesus, come bearing witness to this good news the world over. And then we come to the final chapter, New Creation, which lands itself in Revelation, where finally God will make good in all of his promises to completion, that what he has begun in Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, this new life, Jesus being the first fruits of resurrection, the first to rise from the dead, Jesus will actually sit on his throne and finally make all things new. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sin. It will finally be eradicated. And we will know him and he will know us. And we will finally be as we ought to have been. That's our hope. And that's the flow. Those four chapters of the overarching story of God's work in the world. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your pen. And I want you to draw a line right through the middle of all four chapters. Take a pen. Some of you are getting out a ruler, you know, and using that clipboard. Just just draw a line. Um, And then write Jesus. Because that's what Paul came to understand. That's what Jesus made publicly known. That's what all the New Testament is highlighting, is that each one of these chapters are ultimately pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the author, the creator, the center, the climax, and the finisher of God's work in the world. And this has been verified. Not only did he live perfectly as human beings ought to have lived, but he died taking our penalty upon himself in the fall and was the agent of redemption and the very avenue of new creation life now and into eternity. That is our Jesus. And Paul's like, look, all of history, Moses, the prophets, they've been pointing to the suffering of the Christ who would then rise again, and he's our light. 
And life without him is as if we were living in utter darkness. Life without him is like being drowned in guilt. Life without him is consistent fragmentation. But with him, it's everything that our hearts have longed for. And we've been invited into it. This magnificent story. And called to share it and how it fits into God's big story. And when you see how Jesus changes everything, your heart, like when you really start to know your story and you understand from what you've been saved and to what you've been saved and to whom you've been saved, and you start thinking about all the movements of history that God has orchestrated, your heart just can't be contained. I love how when you go back to our text here, verses 24 through 29, there are two pushbacks that just reveal Paul's just overflowing heart. And the first comes from Festus after Paul gives this testimony. Festus actually says something that sounds really familiar in our culture. He's like, you're out of your mind. Literally, you you are out of your mind. You're nuts, Paul. You've been doing too much reading. And Paul says what? No, I'm rational and I'm telling the truth. He comes with utter confidence. Why? Because of his encounter with Jesus. It wasn't just something that happened back then, but he had encountered Jesus himself. He knew it to be true. So he stood with confidence, but not just confidence. Because he continues on and he even starts pressing Agrippa II. And then Agrippa II's like, hey, are you going to try to make me a Christian now, Paul, with a couple minutes you've got? And Paul's response is not only one of confidence, but of utter compassion. Look with me at verse 29, what he says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He wants everybody to know his story, and he wants everybody to have that same encounter with Jesus, no matter who they are. That's his heart. It's just overflowing. And I want to ask this morning, does your heart ache for everyone to know Jesus? Does your heart ache for everyone to know Jesus? Like that it overflows with this confidence and simultaneous compassion. Because you know what that's a sure sign of? A testimony. Rather than a fake presentation. Something where you've encountered Jesus, where you've embraced and surrendered to Jesus, rather than just telling something that's happened to other people and trying to fake it. Is that the way your heart is? Does your heart ache for everyone to know Jesus because of what Jesus has done in you? Because you know what you've been saved from and what you've been saved to and to whom you've been saved to and you understand the broader scope of the historical movements of God in the world as revealed in Scripture and how it finds its climax in Jesus and you get to be a part of that? If not, why not? If your heart doesn't ache for everyone to know Jesus like that, why not? Listen, this morning, if you're, you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, Gabe, I'm exploring the Christian faith, and that's not my story, but I want it to be. I want to know the joy of being saved from this and to this and to, to the people around me, that I can be an agent of hope to the people around me. I want to see myself as a part of what God's been doing across the world throughout history. It's as simple as inviting Jesus into your story. 
It's as simple as saying, I needed you to die for my sin. Thank you. Here's my life. Send me. That's it. I needed you to die for my sin. Thank you. Here's my life. Send me. Whatever it costs, send me. And you get to be a part of this most glorious story and what God's doing in the world. Now, for most of you in this room, this is already your story. And I want to give a challenge to really, really know your story. So this week, take this sheet, and I want you to spend some time actually writing out your story. Practice telling your testimony, what God's actually done. You'll be surprised how enriching that is in your own walk, how how it actually cultivate joy, cultivate gratitude, blow you away with God's grace again because of what he saved you from, what he saved you to, and to whom he saved you. Let him blow you away with your story. (laughs) And study again how it fits into God's big story. And then look for open doors. Pray for open doors where you might share Sometimes not the whole story, because if it's the whole story, it's 30 minutes and then it starts to feel preachy and people are like, don't talk to that person ever again. Um, unless you maybe get a good happy hour conversation or you're over coffee and somebody really does pry and you feel like you're sitting there in the chair and they're really teasing that, that statement. Why did this happen to you? When did this happen? How is your life different? What, where are you getting this hope? Well, then feel free to lean in. But sometimes and most of the time when there's an open window, it's an opportunity to share part of the story not all of it. And that's okay too. But you won't always know what part to, st- to share if you don't know the whole story. <laughs> so know your story. Write it out. Know how it fits into God's big story. And when the opportunities come, share it. Share it. Because oh. then maybe, just maybe, we might be counted worthy to join our brothers and sisters throughout millennia across the world who tell their testimony and sing together a song that I grew up singing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Would you stand and sing with me these words? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, Purchased of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Think of your story. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long.